I know it's it's very uh, wild for someone to imagine that all Indo-European languages were at one point the same, but that was the case. And for the people that don't know what Zoroastrianism is, could you give a little bit of a historical background? This is an ancient religion that um, has definitely impacted other religions that came after. How did this regime come into power? Was it a coup 44 years ago? Many people say that the Shah of Iran was a, a Western puppet, but they, 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 they missed the entire 1970s of how the Shah was trying so hard to free the country from foreign influence. And that was one of the primary reasons why Britain and a lot of European countries turned, start turning against him. Good day, Bahadur. Good day, Paulus. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. It's a great pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, for those who don't know who Bahadora Last is, could you quickly introduce yourself? Uh, maybe mentioning who you are and also, of course, introducing your YouTube channel. Sure, thank you. Um, so by profession, I am an engineer because a lot of people who know me through my YouTube channel may not know that. Uh, I work full-time as a mining engineer and have been for 14 years now. Uh, but my YouTube channel, which is something that I do on the side as a hobby, a passion, something I love, is uh, to compare different languages and cultures and find commonalities and similarities between them. Um, it, like I said, it is a hobby of mine, but it has grown to uh, be quite a popular channel. I have over uh, close to 300,000 subscribers right now, and uh, it's something that I do for fun. Um, I involve many different languages. It's not focused on like one region or one group of languages. And uh, my goal and intention with it is to bring people closer together, but also make it educational and entertaining. Oh, very cool. So tell me, how how did an engineer decide to create a YouTube channel about cultures and languages and become so successful at the same time? What, what's the correlation here? How did that happen? Well, I I always had a lot of interest in different cultures and languages, specifically their history. Like what really intrigues me is finding out how cultures influence one another, how different languages impacted one another, uh, reading about their history, reading about the, the history of different cultures. And uh, I would travel quite a lot. You know, uh, my previous job allowed me to travel so much. I traveled to 50 different countries. Uh, and uh, throughout these travels, Obviously, this interest of mine kept growing more and more. And one thing I would notice uh, while I was in different countries is how I can pick out uh, a word in this language or that language. Like, let's say, for example, the Serbian language or, or Greek uh, or, or, you know, many different languages. And I would hear words which I understood, which I knew were not uh, native to that language. And it got me more interested in finding out how this word had traveled from this language to that language and eventually made it here. So this kind of got me interested because I was like, this is so cool how they say this word in Croatia and, you know, somebody from a, a country, you know, so far away uses the same word, right? So I was like, oh, we can kind of like make this into a game, you know, something fun where you have two people who, who sit down and I give them a bunch of words and they read it to one another 
and try to guess what the words mean. Uh, and that's kind of how the idea was born. And then later when I uh, met my future wife, uh, you know, when we were talking about this, I was telling her how this is interesting. And she also has the same interests as, as I do in, in different uh, languages and cultures. We're like, yeah, well, we know we live in Toronto. We live in a very multicultural, diverse city. When we have friends from so many different backgrounds, how about we make videos about this? You know, so and that's kind of how it started. Very nice. So how much time has passed since the beginning of the project? And when did it start picking up steam? Because uh, I'm pretty sure you didn't expect that so many people will be interested in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the transition point? Well, we started recording videos back in late 2017, but it wasn't really uh, like language videos. Like people will notice that this YouTube channel has existed since 2013, but I wasn't really making videos. It was just, you know, just it just existed. Uh, so late 2017, uh, we made a couple of videos and then uh, we noticed that, OK, this is being watched. And it was just between us and just friends, very close friends. And then we noticed that it's being watched by more than just the few people that we know, right? And I was like, oh, you know, let's let's ask more people if they want to get involved. And eventually, you know, we started in, throughout 2018 is when it began growing, right? It was, you know, get, gaining a lot of subscribers. You notice that the channel is growing, right? And uh, eventually it wasn't just, just friends and relatives and friends of friends. or It was a lot of subscribers who live in the city of Toronto who would reach out and say, hey, I want to be part of one of these videos. So that's when I knew the channel has grown. And this is this is some sometime I would say in late 2018, 2019. That's when uh, that's when that started happening. And was was uh, it interesting to find a specific connection between two very distinct languages? Because most probably some people know that, let's say, Spanish and Italian language can be mutually understood or or maybe let's say uh, some some other kind of uh, family like Lithuanian and Latvian they're not very intelligible right. to one another but still they're close relatives so was there some kind of a relation that you found that shocked you or, or maybe even a couple of those uh so you know as i mentioned early on uh, it was really when i was in serbia i mentioned the serbian language because i was in serbia that's where when i would pick up Persian words being spoken in the Serbian language. And at, at the time, I wasn't as familiar. Now, I'm talking about this. This is over 10 years ago, right? When I was in Serbia. At the time, I wasn't as familiar with the history of how this happened. So that got me interested. So so that, you know, even though Serbian and the Persian are both Indo-European languages, I could tell that these are not words that are shared among all Indo-European languages. These are... These are definitely terms that have somehow found their way from the Persian language to to the Balkans. And there's a there's a history behind that. Right. So this is what kind of like got me more interested because I would notice words that are not um, they don't share the same root. These are like loan words that went from one language to another language to another language and eventually made it somewhere else. So th this is the part that kind of got me more interested. Right. Because if we're talking about a shared uh, roots between, you know, say you mentioned uh, Spanish, Italian, you know, say Portuguese, or, you know, you could look at uh, Germanic languages, you can look at Iranian languages, you could look at many different uh, family groups, and you'll see that, okay, well, these two terms are the same or very close, even though 
maybe the way they're pronounced is a little different because they share the same root. But uh, in a lot of cases, that's not the reason why there are words in common. And, and that's there's a history behind it all the time. And you have mentioned the Indo-Iranian uh, language family, which is a subgroup of Indo-European. And mm -hmm. I know that you are a native uh, Farsi speaker, which is another word yeah. for Persian, uh, if I am yeah. correct. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> as I know as well, you have grown up in Iran and then uh, moved to Canada 15 years ago, if, I, if I'm correct, or a little bit more. A little more than that, yeah. Okay. And uh, what, what are your fondest mo memories from Iran, if you still have memories from living there? Well, I was quite young when I left Iran. So uh, looking back at the time when I was a child, one thing that I do miss, which we don't really have here, is uh, very large family gatherings. Uh, you know, going to my grandparents' place, which was not in the capital, which was not in Tehran, which where we lived. We, you know, we we travel outside of the city and we go to this uh, this kind of like massive place where my grandparents were, and all of our relatives would come, our families would get together, and they had this huge garden, and and those are the things that I, uh, as a child, that's that's what I recall and and really miss, uh, because you know I didn't, I was um. 10 years old when my family moved away from Iran. And it was, uh, you, you mentioned, it's actually much, a little longer than it was 20, 27 years ago, right? 28 years okay. ago, almost, right? So, so um, it was, uh, it was, it's, there, there aren't so many memories that I have, but the one that I do recall the most is, is, are those large family gatherings and also going out to like the mountains, going to like places that, are very distinct you know there's a lot of people don't know about the, the diverse nature of, of Iran they there's there's so much there's so many like there's there are mountains there's there's snow there's it's not desert you know there's like a small region of the country that's just desert there's there are beautiful beaches and you know there's so many there's you know especially that the northern part of the country it's so lush and green you know so those are the things that I I miss a lot because within like a day you can go from the a, a super green part of the country to like to the mountains and then you could travel a little bit further you go to the desert and then you drive back and you're back in the mountains it's uh these are the memories that i have as as um as a child and i miss that a lot and i'm pretty sure that as uh, diverse as it is in terms of geography uh, of the landscape it's probably as diverse when it comes to people and ethnicities that are living in iran because even while I was doing the research about the languages, well, of course, uh, Persian, although many people might not know that it's Persian that is the official language of Iran, but there's also Azerbaijani, Kurdish, Armenian, Assyrian, little known languages to most like Gilaki or Luri. Uh, though those are very tiny minorities, or maybe they're not even tiny. And there's a lot of diversity in terms of the tongues of the country. So how, how spread out are those communities? Are they interacting with each other? Do they live together or they're more maybe um, living in different parts of the country? Uh, how intermingling are the different et ethnic groups inside Iran? Absolutely. I mean, just to give you a, a quick example, my dad's family is Azerbaijani. And my mom's family is not 
right? And uh, you know, this is this is quite common for people of different uh, ethnic groups to uh, marry one another. Uh, what is not so common is the different religious groups marrying one another. So you mentioned Armenian and, and Syrian, uh, and those are spoken by the uh, the Armenian and the Syrian uh, minority in in Iran, and they tend to maintain kind of like they, they remain within their own communities and uh and, and that's understandable i mean that is whenever you're a very small minority that's very understandable the same way with like um jewish iranians or uh, zoroastrians in iran which is because they're very small communities and they tend to uh, stay together but when it comes to the ethnic groups the different ethnicities uh there's a lot of intermingling there's a lot of mixing and um and you mentioned that Persian is the official language of the country, and that is used as a medium. That's the, the language that people from different ethnic backgrounds will use to interact with one another. Also, you mentioned the Zoroastrianism, which is uh, the ancient religion of Iran. And you said that there is still a small community of people that uh, identify themselves as Zoroastrianists, or Parsi, if I'm correct. Is that the right word? So I'll I'll explain that Parsi is the term Parsi is the term used for the Zoroastrians that left Iran uh, around 1400 years ago after Islam and settled in in the Indian subcontinent. So India and and a very small community still in Pakistan. So they are referred to as Parsis, but the term Parsi is just for that uh, Zoroastrian community in the Indian subcontinent, not the Zoroastrians that still live in Iran. They, the Zoroastrian community inside Iran never refers to themselves as Parsis. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, there is still a, a, a small Zoroastrian community that lives in Iran, and there are Zoroastrian temples, active Zoroastrian temples in the country. Um, and despite the the religious discrimination that exists because of the current regime in Iran, um, Zoroastrians are accepted as one of the religious minorities in the country, along with Christians and Jews. Uh, whereas the other minority that is quite big in Iran, the Baha'i community, is not. They don't recognize them, and they actually are very highly discriminated against uh, by by the regime, not by the people. So. Uh, the Zoroastrian religion, I, I do want to mention something that a lot of people, maybe they've heard of the, the, the term Zoroastrianism, but what they don't know is that despite the fact that the numbers of the followers have dwindled, culturally, the Iranian culture today uh, is very much based on the Zoroastrian religion when it comes to the festivals that we celebrate and the customs and rituals that all Iranians, despite their uh, religion, um, consider as part of their identity, it is based on Zoroastrianism. You know, for instance, the uh, most important festival for Iranians is Nowruz, the spring equinox, the first day of the year, uh, called the Iranian New Year, but I mean, I, I personally just call it Nowruz because it's also celebrated by non-Iranians. That is, that comes from Zoroastrianism. There are other ones like Yalda and Chashambasuri. There's, there's a list of different festivals that Iranians still celebrate that come from Zoroastrianism. And for the people that don't know what Zoroastrianism is, could you give a little bit of a historical background and uh, what kind of influence influences Zoroastrianism had on other religions? Because it's not widely known that uh, 
it was the first monotheistic religion, most likely, on the planet, and it has a lot of historical heritage to it. So, if you can, could you please elaborate a little bit? Well, firstly, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the first monotheistic religion because a lot of people falsely claim that Zoroastrians worship fire, which is not true at all. They don't worship fire. Fire is seen as an important element, the same way water or you know some you know it's not worship. So this is something that a lot of people get wrong. They they falsely claim that Zoroastrians worship fire. No, they're they're monotheistic, just like Jews, just like Muslims, Christians. They believe in a, a single God. Uh, and this is an ancient religion that um, has definitely impacted other religions that came after. And some of those rituals, some of those, um, you know, if you study the, the, the text, you'll see that uh, they are pretty much copied from Zoroastrianism, um, you know, and the influence is not just cultural, but also in, within the scriptures, you know, for, you know, let's say, for example, the concept of heaven and hell. Uh, this this existed in Zoroastrianism. The uh, a ritual of cleaning yourself with water prior to praying, which you you see in some religions. The concept of praying five times a day at specific times. This was uh, this is part of Zoroastrian Zoro Zoroastrian religion, and uh, the list goes on and on. You know, there are so many different things, uh, and I know a lot of people might like to think that their religion is very unique but we have to keep in mind that all religions all belief systems have taken ideas from uh, one another and and influence one another so it's it's very important this is a, this is a historical fact this is not about attacking someone's religion or trying to diminish or or downplay what the religion is it's just a historical fact that religions have influenced and impacted one another and I know that the Zoroastric texts are written by an ancient language with, which was called Avestan. And the holy book of Zoroastrianism is called Avesta. So that is quite similar to the Indian Vedas and Sanskrit being the equivalent. So how connected are such languages as, let's say, Old Persian, Avestan, and uh, modern-day Persian language? Uh, are they closely related or have they changed a lot like what what happened there well avesta is still kind of uh seen as the the religious language of zoroastrianism along with old persian though they were the old iranian languages as you mentioned uh, very close to sanskrit and of course also similarities are shared with lithuanian uh, which is quite noticeable once you start to dig deep into those languages. Old Persian is the uh, ancestor of modern Persian. Uh, it was written in the cuneiform. Um, you know, the, the script has obviously changed. That's not, that's not used anymore. Uh, even Middle Persian used a different script. Uh, but it is the ancestor of modern Persian. There are a lot of terms and words that are shared that are in common um, that are used in modern Persian today. Uh, but to understand the old Persian language, it is not possible. Middle Persian, however, is to a large extent still uh, intelligible to a modern Persian speaker. But when we go to old Persian, Avesta, it, it becomes quite distinct and different. And that is, that's natural. That, that, that's the same with pretty much every language in the world. Uh, but yes, they are um, connected and very much in common. Uh, they have a lot in common with Sanskrit and also 
uh, old Persian is the ancestor of modern Persian. As I said, they do share quite a lot, but they're not, um, if somebody were to read something from old Persian, it wouldn't be that easy to understand, even though you could probably pick out a lot of words. And as a language explorer, in some ways I could even call you a language archaeologist, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> how come languages of such different regions as, let's say, Lithuania, Iran, and uh, India are connected in such a way that uh, they bear quite interesting and archaic similarities? How, how did this happen? Was it a migra migration issue or was it something else? Well, I mean, again, because I love history so much, um, when you dig back and you go back in time and, and you look at where different tribes and different communities had lived, it, it, I know it's, it's very uh, wild for someone to imagine that all Indo-European languages were at one point the same. But that was the case. There was a single Indo-European language that was spoken a very long time ago. But, uh, you know, the tribes and humans are, were nomadic. They would keep moving. They would move this way, go that way. And throughout these migrations, they would interact with other communities. They would interact with different groups of people. And this would influence them. This would influence their culture. This would impact their language. And uh, this would impact the way they pronounce a certain word that was the same as um, the other groups of people that they were living with. And throughout history, they would migrate and expand. And, and that's, you know, as time goes on, everything changes, you know, language, culture, it all, it all changes and progresses or shifts or uh, gets influenced, impacted, and becomes something different and quite distinct, which is why today, you know, even though, say, uh, a language like Lithuanian and Russian and Persian and, and Hindi and Bengali and Spanish, these are all Indo-European languages, but they have changed and shifted so much throughout time that uh, they don't sound anywhere close to one another. However, you can always find the Indo-European commonalities between them when it comes to specific words. That's very cool. It's, uh, it sheds a lot of light on uh, how the world has been before maybe 4,000, 5,000, maybe after the Ice Age, even before the Ice Age, who knows? Like it's, it gets very misty, uh, especially if you listen to people like Graham Hancock or someone else with alternative views on history. So uh, then you start questioning a lot of things that, uh, that refers to our ancient history in some ways. But when we come back to Iran and we think about how the Persian language has changed, because you mentioned that there's the old Persian language, there's the mid-Persian language, there's the modern Persian language. So did it change because of certain shifts in the in the life of Persia and Iran, like different kind of, there was Alexander the Great, there was the spread of Islam, there were so many things happening. So could you speak a little bit about the transitions that your country and uh, what has been before the country went through? Yeah, of course, you know, as, as I mentioned, there was the old Persian language, the middle Persian and modern Persian. And uh, what these shifts are kind of 
very natural this this change that 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 changes for the most part it's very natural because you look at other ancient languages and they've also gone through a process of changing uh what we see like from old persian to middle persian is the the change of the script is quite obvious uh, a lot of people think that prior to modern persian there was one script that was used but that's not the case the middle persian language was uh written in the in a modified aramaic script and uh, the old persian was you know it was just the cuneiform is you know you see it you see it still in ancient tablets and and uh, historical sites throughout iran um the shift that takes place from middle persian to modern persian happens after islam uh, but this is also something that is um, kind of uh, misunderstood and there are a lot of stereotypes about it uh the language uh the the arabs who came and you know throughout the islamic conquest they they did not um change the language to the extent that people think they did the modern persian language does contain a lot of arabic loan words there's no question about that but these words the the original persian word is almost always preserved and maintained sometimes it's just used interchangeably like a lot of times we might use the arabic loan word or we might use the persian word uh, the, the the original persian word but even if that's not the case they are preserved in poetry in literature and uh, you can always find the equivalent of an arabic loan word in the persian language what happens uh, after islam is uh the, the middle persian language gradually starts to change and uh, a few centuries after islam is when the script change uh, takes place and this is also something that uh people don't know much about so they think that the arabs forced the persians to change their script but that was not the case Arabic became more like the lingua franca of the the region the same way English is the lingua franca of the world and that's why a lot of languages have adopted to use the latin script uh they've changed like you say turkish for example a century ago they changed uh you know indonesian malaysian somali i can name you so many different languages that started adopting the latin script uh the same way that you know cyrillic has started being used for certain languages. So Arabic becomes the lingua franca of the region. The uh Iranian people go through a very very I would say difficult process of trying to not have their language be changed because a lot of the countries a lot of the they weren't necessarily countries at the time but a lot of regions throughout the Middle East um you know they became arabized they adopted the arabic language uh you know with islam iranians even though they became a muslim majority they fought to maintain and preserve their language and distinct identity and uh, that that is why the script change takes place by native iranian uh, dynasties but it is just a, a change in script the language remains the same um and as i said the arabic loan words as well as french loan words a lot of in iranian persian the iranian persian is kind of a variety like there are different varieties of the persian language like if you go to tajikistan or afghanistan the variety is a little bit different but within iranian uh persian there's a there are a lot of french loan words as well and they also have their uh native equivalents which are preserved so is the persian language also uh also the national language of some other countries at the moment 
Yes. So uh, in Afghanistan and in Tajikistan, um, this is another thing that causes confusion because I've heard and I've seen many people assume that in Tajikistan and in Afghanistan, they call the Persian language Tajik and Dari. Tajik in, Af in Tajikistan and Dari in, a, in, a, in Afghanistan. But these are, uh, to be honest with you, these are just really political terms for the same language. Uh, you know, we don't call the English language spoken in Canada or Britain or Australia, you know, by a different term. It, it's English, right? You know, I, a, a Persian speaker from Iran has a much easier time understanding a, a, a Persian speaker from Tajikistan than a Canadian and an Australian sometimes. You know, but <laughs> people are not going to start calling. They don't say, oh, Australian is, is not English. It's, a, it's a, They don't give it another name, right? Like we can easily understand one another. If I speak to somebody from Tajikistan, um, as well as a large communities within Uzbekistan, because uh, as you know yourself, uh, being from Lithuania, a lot of the former Soviet republics, the, the boundaries are just very randomly drawn. They're not uh, based on where like uh, ethnic or, or, or people who speak certain language are, are living. So Uzbekistan today, the, the boundaries of Uzbekistan, a huge part of it is... Uh, you know, drawn to include the Tajik speaking communities, which technically should be part of Tajikistan. But I mean, that, I don't want to get too political here. But the point I was trying to make is that in, in, in Uzbekistan as well, there are cities where the majority of the people uh, are native Persian speakers. Um, and I can also, we can also like communicate with them, even though it's not the official language of Uzbekistan, it is, uh, it is spoken by the majority in certain parts of the country. Yeah, that's absolutely true that uh, sometimes the geopolitical map gets divided not according to ethnic, linguistic or other boundaries. Uh, we could mm -hmm. take like even Kaliningrad, for example, it has gone mm -hmm. so much transition throughout history being a Russian land of old Russians, which were a Baltic tribe transitioning into the Germanic order, going through uh, given given uh, to to Russia after the Versailles Congression, it's it's and it has gone so much transition that if I would be a person from that place, I would be super confused about my history. <laughs> and as as you have said, even uh, I got very curious and interested when I saw that because my grandparents come from a region that is in the south of Lithuania, which is very close to the Lithuanian Polish border. So it's maybe like 20 mm -hmm. kilometers away. And uh, sometimes when you go over the border, you just continue seeing names of villages in Lithuanian. And I was like, hey, but we're in another country. How does that work? And then I realized that, you know, there has been a lot of border changes and other kind of things. So, so I do understand that a lot of things uh, in the region of, let's say, Tajikistan, uh, Iran, and uh, I think you also mentioned Uzbekistan, if I'm correct, or was it another country? Uh, Afghanistan is is where Afghanistan, so, yes. Yeah, in Afghanistan, um, the Persian language under the name Dari has official status, uh, along with Pashto, right? So uh, then a lot of native Pashtuns. So Pashto is another Iranian language, like among uh, Iran. Like so, this is this is where like um, I should be very clear about this there is the iranian as the nationality the citizens of the country of iran based on the modern day political boundaries of iran and there's also the 
ethno-linguistic group of Iranian people and languages, uh, which extends far beyond what is modern-day country of Iran, uh, and Pashto being one of them, where Pashto-speaking communities don't exist in Iran. I mean, maybe through some migrants or people who have, who have settled, but it's a very small community. But in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, there's a huge uh, Pashto-speaking community, and their language is among the uh, linguistic family of Iranian languages. Uh, so the country of Afghanistan is also very diverse when it comes to ethnicities and languages. And, and uh, so a huge part, part of the country speaks Pashto as their native language, and a huge part speaks Persian as their native language. But both of those have uh, official status in the country. There are also numerous ethnic minorities and, and smaller groups of people in different languages. Well, that explains a lot to me because uh, actually my girlfriend's father grew up in Tajikistan. Uh, he was not originally from Tajikistan, but due to the world wars and uh, Nazism and other kind of situations happening in Europe at that time, he and his family moved away and settled in Tajikistan. And he had stories about some of uh, some of his relatives that <laughs> would always go, they were like traders and they would go through different countries and just change the hats and pretend they're locals. <laughs> and just because the languages were quite similar and uh, they were able to learn the, the differences between each language, they could uh, pretend as though they were locals and get some benefits from doing that. So I always, <laughs> I always found the story very entertaining and very fun. And now I do understand the background of it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, are so many different um, ethnic groups, but they're also at the same time very much connected with each other. They, they share a common root, um, although the languages have you know, diverged and become different they do share the same root and uh, that's why a lot of times they can understand a lot of one, what the other side is saying but they may not be able to speak the other language but uh, you know that goes the same that it's the same with a lot of different iranian languages where uh, if i'm if i hear somebody speak the language i can probably understand what they're saying for the most part or the context but i wouldn't really be able to speak back to them in the language I can speak Persian and they'll probably understand what I'm saying. Gotcha. And when, when you have moved away to live in Canada, uh, you were quite young, as you have said, you were 10 years old. So I'm pretty sure when you came there, you started learning English or have you started learning before? Uh, I didn't really speak much English when I came. Uh, nowadays, it's different. Now, now you know, the, the, the young generation in Iran is... Um, they learned, you know, it's very common for them to, to be able to speak English. But at the time, it wasn't. You know, we would, I, I'd taken some classes. My parents put us in some classes, but I didn't really, to be honest with you, I didn't speak English. Like, that is the best way to put it. I really, I just knew some words. <laughs> but at the age of 10, especially when you're, when you want to learn something, it was very quick. It was a very quick process. Within a few months, I was able to just, like, talk and communicate with people. And then after wow. a year, just became very smooth and easy. And after that, did you pick up some other languages or, or also maybe when you came to live in Canada, you were already speaking some other tongues? Uh, I wouldn't say that I s learned any other languages fl 
fluently. I don't. I don't speak other languages, but I became familiar with them, which is why when I listen to other languages, I can understand it. But I don't. I wouldn't be able to speak them. I wouldn't be able to communicate. I can't read. I can, you know, if I read the, you know, Persian and English, I I can read and write fluently. You know, these are languages that I can say I can speak as as somebody who's native, somebody who um, can fluently speak the language. But when it comes to other languages. I wouldn't say I speak them, but I can. I definitely understand a lot. There are there are quite a quite a few languages where I, when I hear people speak, I can pick up the context. I can pick up what is going on, uh, but I wouldn't be able to speak back in in their language. So in a way, knowing the Persian language would bear some benefits as knowing, let's say, Russian language, because when you know Russian, you can understand quite a few Slavic languages. The same with knowing French. If you know French, you can understand quite a, a lot of Romantic languages. If you also know Latin, that helps a lot because my girlfriend, she knows French and she has studied Latin. And when she came to Portugal, she understands quite a lot. Of course, she cannot say anything, but while reading, at least, she, she can comprehend certain things, which was very delightful for her. <laughs> And it helps her learning process as well. So if you decide to learn Farsi, most probably it would help you to understand different kind of dialects and tongues of the region. You have already mentioned Afghanistan. You have mentioned Tajikistan. Uh, I don't know about Uzbekistan or other regions, but probably it's something like that main language that you know and you can then st start to comprehend and understand other languages easier. Yeah, oh, for sure, definitely. Uh, you know, in, in Afghanistan and in Tajikistan, they basically speak a variety of Persian. So uh, they're they're mutually intelligible. That, that, you know, a lot of times we might have trouble with certain things, but that is purely based on accent, uh, you know, or, or, or certain words. There's some words are different, that's, that's for sure. Uh, but there are many different languages and many different... Um, you know, some people may call them dialects of the Persian language, but that also becomes political as well in some cases. Right. But there are there are a lot of different languages, uh, you know, extending outside of Iran. Let, let's say, for example, uh, a language like Urdu, which is uh, spoken in Pakistan and spoken in India and, and Hindi. Hindi and Urdu are pretty much the same language, um, just written in different scripts. Uh, you know, somebody who is a, who speaks Urdu, someone who speaks Hindi, they can just speak to one another. Both of uh, th these, this, this is a language that has had a lot of Persian influence. Uh, although they're both Indo-Iranian languages, uh, they are distinct. Uh, but I think somebody who speaks Persian and has a, a fair bit of understanding of the of Indo-Iranian languages can learn Hindi slash Urdu quite easily because there's a lot of shared vocabulary. There's a lot of shared words. And uh, this is something, one thing to keep in mind, this is not the result. I mean, part of it is a result of common Indo-Iranian terminology that goes back to you know thousands of years ago. But a major reason for it is because of the last uh, few centuries um, where the Persian language became the official language of, of a lot of different non-Iranian empires. And this is very important to keep in mind. There were a lot of ethnically Central Asian Turkic empires that extended from Central Asia 
to Anatolia and South Asia, you know, modern day India and Pakistan, they were not uh, Iranian. They were not ethnically Iranian. And the Persian language was not their native language, but they made Persian their official language. And through this process, a lot of, uh, you know, Persian words reached the languages of um, different Indian languages. And then if you look at the Balkans, uh, when, because the Ottomans also, you know, when they extended and they, they, they were, you know, part of the Balkans and Eastern Europe was under Ottoman control, a lot of the words through that process, a lot of Persian words went through that route as well and reached languages like Romanian or, or you know, I previously mentioned Serbian, but also, you know, other languages in Eastern Europe, like Bulgarian, you know, that they, they, these words, this is the process of how the words reach those languages. And for a person that is interested in, uh, let's say, how the ancient world was, uh, about the migrations and changes of languages, about the cultures, about the kingdoms, everything that you have learned as a language and history enthusiast, what are some materials or maybe some books that you could recommend people that could read to also gain a little bit more knowledge into this uh, aspect of history? Uh to be honest, like because I do a lot of uh, just independent research, like I would, I would, I, I, there's not a specific book that I can say is, you know, this is like, you know, a book that I would suggest for understanding like the ancient world. When it comes to books, I can recommend specific books about the politics of the past hundred years in Iran. That, that is something that I can definitely like recommend reading material but when it comes to like the ancient world when it comes to like history i just you know there's like a certain subject i'll start reading about it i'll start i'll, I'll look online and i'll read about that if i if there's something else I'll, I'll i'll go like research about that i'll start reading about it because uh that's why i, I wouldn't be able to recommend a specific book but um i think that what's really important is to always uh dig deep into everything because a lot of times we hear something about like, oh, how something in this language or something in this language is the case, you know, like I'll, I'll give you one example. I made one video comparing Korean with Tamil. And, uh, you know, the, at the time when I made this video, it was people were like, well, how could Tamil and Korean have any anything in common? Uh, so the video became quite popular. It was it was, uh, you know, broadcasted and shown and in, in different articles in, in different parts of the world. And I was reading so many strange and random theories about why this exists. And, and I just want to tell people, I want to warn them not to ever like fall for these things. If you read something online, just kind of try to do more research about it. Don't just, don't just like, you know, take it at face value and say, Oh, this is, this is the reason this is why this happened. Um, Cause there's a lot of like, false information as well. There's a lot of just superstition. There's a lot of random stories that are not true that people just make up and they post online. And sometimes it just sounds interesting. So people are like, well, this is, this is, this is, this is cool. This is, you know, I'm going to tell other people, this is the reason. But I just, I just highly recommend that people do more research. Don't just take it from like one source or one place. So what do you think, what could be a good way to 
decipher false information from true information because that's for some people even for me at at points it's very hard to make that distinction because not everything can be backed up by research not everything can be backed up by hard data and then it's mainly a hunch that you make uh, because let's say when we go deeper deeper in history a lot of things becomes subject to interpretation and there are archaeological evidence but when we think even about languages lithuanian was not written until the middle ages so most of the time it was a spoken language so when you want to guess how old is lithuanian if you only look at the written scripts you will say well it's from the 15th century or something like that so it, it starts getting complicated in some ways so for people that would like to be more critical would you recommend just trying to read as much of different kind of sources as possible and then make an informed opinion or is there another way how to decipher that, that that's the best way to go about it if we i mean when it comes to when it comes to a subject that uh historical subjects that go back very very you know far back sometimes it's very difficult sometimes you can never know for certain what is true um so you have to you have to sort of make an informed decision by yourself uh like i said you can't just take something at you know take it and say oh this is this must be the reason um but even for for me i still um don't have a conclusive answer to some some questions and th there's nothing wrong with that you know we don't have to know exactly why this is or why that is and always just say okay no we have to have a reason we have to have an answer uh you know you know one thing i mentioned about like you know the persian language and the change of script you know there's still different theories around that like why did why did they change it the most conclusive answer that i can give uh, about the change from the the middle persian to the modern persian script and why they adopted the persian the arabic script uh, a modified form of the arabic script it was because arabic became the, the lingua franca and it was it was better for them to be able to spread the language and, and preserve it now that is something that i have come up with based on the information that i've read based on what i studied about the history of the time period and and so on but that is not a hundred percent conclusive answer if i if i find something else that that makes more sense and if i find more information more historical facts i i would say well you know i was not a hundred percent correct about this right you know this is this is one example of some some something that i'm not you know saying i'm i'm 100% sure this is the reason right so the the same goes when we go back over a thousand years 1500 2000 years ago there are a lot of there's a lot of information that we have which might not be 100% accurate or true so you got to always keep that in mind and never feel like it's wrong to not know the answer right we just do the best that we can we always do research and we always dig more to find out more well, unfortunately, many people are fairly lazy to do that. So whenever they pick up an idea, if it sounds appealing, they'll just uh, lean onto it and form their identity around it. So not many people like doing research. Uh, it takes time, it takes effort, and you know you can get confusing opposing opinions. Then you have to make decisions. Uh, so, so unfortunately, that that's not the process that everyone goes through. But I'm really glad that uh, people like you who are interested in history and interested in languages uh, are able to actually go 
a few steps deeper and to unveil some very interesting uh, commonalities between diverse cultures and diverse peoples. And uh, when we come back to your project, I know that uh, you are looking for specific people from specific countries to do, let's say, language comparisons. Are there any people or any languages that you're, you're currently in the hunt for? Well, Lithuanian, right? <laughs> we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll, make a we'll make a video together pretty soon uh, because Lithuanian is such an interesting, intriguing, and an amazing language. And uh, I have uh, I have several different ideas. But uh, aside from that, I don't actively reach out as much as I used to because there are so many people who uh, contact me and they want to participate. So I do my very best to try to involve them. Uh, First and foremost, that's that's my priority when it comes to the, the videos. But if I were to to mention languages that I am actively looking for and for people who are fluent and uh, interested and willing to participate, uh, they would be uh, native indigenous languages in Canada and also the United States. So native languages that are spoken in North America, because I have a, a bit of familiarity with them, uh, not be able not to speak those languages, but as far as their history, because you know, being a Canadian, I, I, you know, do a lot of studying and research on Canadian history as well. And so I'm I'm always very interested in being able to feature those languages and uh, dig a little bit deeper into their history and also help some of them uh, preserve the languages which are kind of dying uh, out. But uh, that would be the one those those languages native. Uh, indigenous languages of Canada and the United States. And are there still many people that speak the indigenous languages? And uh, is it hard to find them? Uh, so I used to work in uh, a, a part of Canada in the Northwest Territories, which is far north, say the North Pole. To, 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 actually, the best way for me to like explain to people, <laughs> the best way to explain it for people is to say the Alaska of Canada. Whenever I was like traveling and I was trying to tell them where it is, it's like, well, think, look at where Alaska is and just, just come over to Canada. It's kind of where it is. Uh, and over there, uh, you know, I met a lot of people, uh, First Nations, uh, indigenous communities, uh, people who uh, spoke uh, certain languages, which many Canadians have not even heard about, right? And uh, I, I wanted to involve them, but there's also the element of the person wanting to be a part of this, right? So this is the reason why I don't search for people. I, I have them come to me because the people who reach out to you and say they want to participate, they are the ones who really want to be a part of it. They're the ones who really want to talk about their language. They want to tell the world about their culture and about their, you know, there's, 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 there's so much that's better about it that way. Uh, so I never want to, I never wanted to feel, I, I didn't want to force the people that I knew to be a part of this. Although I, I did meet quite a few people who spoke the language. Some of them, some of them just didn't feel comfortable. They're like, well, I speak it, but I don't speak it that well. So people are probably going to tell me like, uh, you're not a good representative. Um, but yeah, aside from that, there are, there are so many, there are numerous, uh, native, uh, languages, uh, throughout Canada. Uh, you know, for instance, the Cree language, that is one of the, the better known ones. And, you know, uh, one, one thing that people outside of Canada don't know is many of the uh, names, the cities, uh, even the name Canada, these are all indigenous, come from indigenous languages, Toronto, Ontario, 
Ottawa, all, all of these names, like people, if they do a little bit of research about them, they'll see that most of these names come from um, native Canadian languages. Yeah, I heard that actually from a friend who went uh, quite often to the New York state. And when you leave Manhattan and you go deeper into into the state, you start seeing names that you cannot even pronounce. <laughs> they're, they're, they're so foreign to, to even an English speaker. And that's the reason why, because they're indigenous names of the towns and the places that you find. So so it's also very interesting. And, and yeah, I believe that uh, aside from the Indo-European language family, there's uh, other kind of languages that developed, let's say, in the Americas or elsewhere in, in Africa, in Australia, in the islands, let's say in Melanesia or elsewhere. And uh, even under one of my videos, I saw a lot of fight between Tamil and Sanskrit speakers about which language is the oldest and which language is the mother of all languages. <laughs> so there's always a, a feeling that you want to have that like from, from one thing, everything else came out which is actually mm -hmm. true when we think about Indo-European languages because mm -hmm. most likely it came from the same language, but that does not encompass the whole world. So when, whenever you want to make research about languages that are outside of Indo-European language family, is it more difficult to find information about them or is it also fairly easy to get the context? Uh, it depends. I mean, uh, say for example, uh, Semitic languages, right? Uh, they, they're, I, I find Semitic languages and their history to be very interesting as well. Um, the Indo-Iranian people and Iranian people in general have historically always uh, had a lot of interaction with Semitic people. Uh, and this goes to well before Islam, uh, where the Arabs and Persians would start to you know, interact and all that influence that comes even well prior to that with the, the Assyrians, for instance, uh, the Aramaic language. Uh, so I, I find those Semitic languages to be very interesting, very intriguing. So um, it's not as easy to find information uh, when it comes to those languages compared to uh, Indo-European languages, especially Iranian languages, because, I, because I'm so familiar with them, it's so easy for me to like put together material. But it is still possible. You can definitely still, um, you know, dig deep and find information. It's, it's out there. And you also mentioned that you, you're a little bit interested about Lithuanian language in some ways. Uh, because we will not have time to speak uh, on your show much about the context, because it's a little bit of a shorter format, uh, may, maybe you could share here a couple of things that uh, got you interested in this language specifically as well. Well, I think the the, the very fact that Lithuanian uh, retains a lot of archaic elements, and when it comes to any language um, that preserves uh, ancient, you know, archaic uh, elements of the language, I'm always interested. I'm always interested to know more. Um, and, and that's, that's the reason. And then, you know, when I was like doing a little bit of research, finding the commonalities with Sanskrit is what really got me interested because, uh, I realized that this is, these are things that are factual, 
because the Lithuanian language is spoken today. We have we have Sanskrit as 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 a language as well as uh, you know there there are dictionaries there are terms and you when you find these words in common, this is no longer just like some hypothesis or some you know random like you know somebody making a statement. This is this is a fact that you that I'm you know seeing the the common words between these two languages and. And it this tells you a lot. It's it's very for me. It's just amazing. It's something really intriguing and interesting to look deeper into. And uh, you know, as as I mentioned, when we do make a video together, that is definitely one of the subjects I do want to focus on. And I wonder if we would be still able to find some commonalities between Lithuanian and Persian. Maybe with uh, old Persian, maybe there would could be more similarities. But uh, I. I'm very curious about the modern Persian. Would there still be something, some loan words or something else still re retained in both languages? Definitely will be, but not as much as it would be with old Persian. So that is also a subject to, um, you know, perhaps we could even do a video with Lithuanian and old Persian. Uh, because I do know people who are studying old Persian as kind of like, you know, real like academic study of the old Persian language. So I would be able to have people who can represent the language and pronounce the words in the correct way and, um, the, you know, know the specific terms. So. Cool. And uh, I also want to respect your time. I know that we have like 15 more minutes to go uh, or something, something similar to that. And I still have so many questions to ask you, but uh, no I'll try to pick out the most important ones for me at the moment. <laughs> so sure. one, one common one is that many people, as you have said, misrepresent Iran as a Arab country for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's one of the most common stereotypes about Iran, but most probably there are other stereotypes and, uh, what do you think? What are the most common stereotypes that need to go because they're misinforming the people about the place and the people of the of the culture? And also maybe close close to that, why why do people confuse Iran with Arabic? So let's say Iranians with their Arabs. So what, what is the confusion here? Sure. Well, the first thing I do want to mention is um, I, I don't like to say that we are Iranian and we're not Arab. You know, I don't I, I don't like to say it that way because it almost sounds like um, we are against Arab people. It's not about it, it, it's not about racism. It's not about discrimination. And it's just the fact that, you know, we are two distinct groups of people, two, two distinct languages, two very distinct cultures. Uh, which have influenced one another. Another point I do want to make is that even though the overwhelming majority of Iranians are not Arab, there's a very, very tiny Arab minority uh, that is native to one of the provinces in southwest uh, of, of Iran. And uh, to me, they are just as Iranian as everybody else. Just because they're ethnically Arab and their native language is Arabic doesn't make them um, not part of the the nation of Iran. So I just want to make that very, very clear. Uh, but uh, as far as why people uh, make this confusion, well, for one, because um, the countries, Iran and the Arab world are right next to each other. Uh, uh, for the most part, although 
you know, independent numbers show something different. The overwhelming majority of the Arab world is Muslim, and uh, the majority of Iranians are Muslim. And I said, I said some independent numbers show something different because a lot of recent uh, research shows that only around 30% to 35% of Iranians actually identify as being Muslim. But that is a different subject to to talk about a different time. But as but because of that, uh, because of the religious element, and also because the script, the Persian language, is written using a modified form of the Arabic script. Uh, I say modified because the base is the Arabic script, but the Persian language has added more uh, letters to it. There are four uh, additional letters that don't exist in Arabic, and that is to uh, make it. Uh, be suitable for the Persian language. Uh, these are the, the the main reasons. Just because they're in the same region, because of religion, because of uh, the the script the script that's used to write the language, uh, a lot of things like that. And and I, the thing is that a lot of people want to say that um, the Arab they say well, well we Arabs look like this or the Persians look like that. If you go to Iran, Iran is such a diverse country. You'll find all forms of appearances. Uh, you can find many Iranians that look like a typical person from um, an Arab country. You can also find Iranians who are uh, much darker, much lighter skinned. Uh, you know, you go to northeastern part of Iran, you'll find Iranians that look Central Asian or even East Asian. You know, this idea of like genetics governing what your identity and culture is to me is just ridiculous because we are a very diverse nation we have so many different appearances so many different looks that's why when someone tells me you look like this you look like that i'm like yeah sure i mean i could pass for this in this country i could pass for that in that country it doesn't really matter that's not what defines my culture or what defines my heritage or identity but the, the, back to the point is these are the, the reasons why many people do confuse um Arabs and Persians and, and think that Iranian people are Arab. Understood. As as, um, oh, oh, sorry, no, I was going to say as far as the um, other point that you mentioned about uh, the uh, stereotypes and what people, you know, assumptions that are made about Iranian people, it ties into the point that I, I just made is because of the current ruling regime in Iran that's been in power for 44 years, uh, a lot of people, especially for myself, I've noticed this when I traveled a lot. I go to countries where maybe they never really met or interacted much with Iranians. They assume that Iranians are just like that regime, very extremely religious and super conservative and, and you know, all of that. But the reality is so different. It's very different. And, and I think over the past uh, year, because of the, the massive uprising and protests that have taken place in Iran, uh, I think a lot of people around the world have, have woken up to that. They've started to see the Iranian people for who they truly are, rather than what they assumed, which was assuming that they were just like their government, that they are not uh, these regressive, super you know extremists and religious fanatics and they are the exact opposite of that, and they're trying to free themselves from that. Uh, you know, like I said, the independent research right now shows that, and I'm not saying that just because somebody is Muslim that that then they're like a fanatic. No, but I'm just saying how the country is uh, not seen for what it really is, and then independent research is showing that 30 to 35 percent of the country identifies as being Shia Muslim, and a, about a majority of the country doesn't really identify with Islam. Uh, so this is these are things that 
people outside of the country don't know much about. Um, also, the fact that for the average Iranian person, even Iranian Muslims, their Iranian culture comes first before their religion. I'm not talking about the, the, the very, very religious people. I'm not talking about the regime. I'm talking about the average Iranian Muslim, which includes many of my own relatives and family members. Their culture of uh, their Iranian culture, their language, all of that comes before their religion. Um, this is not something again that I'm gonna that I want to say because I am I want to say something negative about the religion. No, I'm just stating a fact about how the society functions and how people are. Uh, but yeah, that that would be the, the another major stereotype that is I think quite prevalent still in some parts of the world. But uh, because of what what's happened in the last year, I really do think um, if people are tuned in, if they're following what's going on in the world, they have come to realize that the average Iranian person is nothing like the, the regime that occupies them. So while we still have some time, could you please speak a little bit about how does this regime come into power? Was it a coup that happened 44 years ago? This is something that would take a few hours to explain. So there's, there's a lot... <laughs> There's a lot that uh, that I can talk about. If people are interested, I've actually made a few posts on my Instagram page about historical events that led up to uh, the 1979, uh, you know, catastrophe. I don't even want to call it a revolution. It was it was it was an absolute catastrophe. So uh, when you go back to the 1960s and 1970s, Iran went through a massive uh, shift, a huge change. Um, you know what some people call the white revolution uh, that's referred to I don't I don't really like the term white revolution because it doesn't really like explain what was happening it was a lot of social reforms a lot of uh, changes within the country and the country was actually growing uh, in a very very rapid uh, way you know it's it growing very rapidly like it was you know throughout the 19 late 1960s to the early 1970s mid 1970s uh, economically, in terms of technology, in terms of so many aspects of life, uh, you know, social aspects, it was growing really fast. And uh, obviously, there was a lot of people who, you know, were not happy with certain changes when it came to the, the religious, the, the clergy. Uh, there were also a lot of people who were not religious. In fact, uh, a lot of communists, a lot of people who were uh, quite anti-religion, you could say, they were also against the uh, the former government of Iran, the Shah of Iran at the time. So they were the, the major opponents. There was the, uh, the, the religious and they were the uh, leftists and a lot of communists, but they all started to work hand in hand in order to get rid of the uh, the government that was in power at the time. But again, there's so many, so many small details that goes into this because it wasn't only the people inside the country. There was also the external and foreign element that was involved. Uh, many people say that the Shah of Iran was a, a Western puppet, but they, 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 they missed the entire 1970s of how the Shah was trying so hard to free the country from foreign influence. And that was one of the primary reasons why Britain and a lot of European countries turned start turning against him 
And th these are not things that I'm saying because, you know, some people say, oh, that this is just like, you know, a conspiracy theory. No, I mean, you can you can go and read the actual documents and official uh, communication that was taking place with the uh, foreign minister of uh, the UK and foreign minister of the United States with people who were kind of working against the Shah of Iran. Like this is these are these are actual like facts. Um, one of the big uh, reasons why the West started to turn against the Shah was that in the 1970s, uh, uh, when uh, Israel and uh, Israelis and Palestinians, there, there was a there was a 1973, there was a war, Yom Kippur War, and uh, a lot of uh, Arab countries uh, uh, began to boycott. They said we're not selling oil to any country that supports Israel. And what the Shah of Iran did was, he said, uh, basically, he said, well, why would we do that? Why don't we, why don't you guys, let's all work together and we raise oil prices. Why, why, uh, you know, and this, this is just something that really triggered a lot of people who at the time thought that they can control the Shah, they can control Iran, they can control how uh, the oil flows out of the Persian Gulf to the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, because of that, they managed, you know, he, he basically took control. He said that I'm not going to be governed, I'm not going to be told by Western powers what to do. So this is this to me, at least, you know, this is this is not a conspiracy theory. This is the reason why a lot of uh, Western governments were angered because they didn't see the Shah as they realized that he's no longer that, you know, little baby that they can just kind of tell him what to do and what you need to do and, and whatnot. And and something else that that really is is very interesting. And I don't know why a lot of uh, so-called anti-imperialists in the West who, who for some reason love to support uh, dictatorships because they're against the West. I, I mean, they don't really think, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but it's just frustrating when I come across people who say they're against imperialism and they support a, a brutal dictatorship in, in Iran. A lot of them don't realize that Khomeini, who uh, takes over the country in 1979, he was living in France. He was protected and sheltered by the French government, supported by the United Kingdom. They gave him the best equipment, the best of everything to spread his propaganda. Meanwhile, no Middle Eastern country wanted to, to have Khomeini in their, on their soil. None of the Muslim countries wanted him there, So, but the French were. And then he, fl he flies first class from Paris to Tehran. That's, that's the day that this so-called revolution takes place. I mean, if, if people are so against like, Western imperialism or whatever they want to call it, uh, well, why are they against that? Why aren't you against the fact that the, the French and the, the, the UK government were the ones who supported uh, taking this change in Iran? I mean, again, this is something that would take so long to talk about, but I, I, just, I, I just try to condense it into um, um, a few minutes. But this, is, this was one of the, these were some of the primary reasons as to what led to that major change and one thing else uh, that that's really worth mentioning so many people especially on the left who initially supported the uh the Khomeini and the islamic revolution because they wanted to get rid of the shah so many of them regretted it right away so many of them who had high positions were either arrested executed uh, forced to flee the country they went into exile and died in exile so this was a disaster for even the people who uh you know fought to make this revolution happen 
and this was you know my during my parents generation and i i can i can never understand or, or, or forgive the people who uh who did that to the country they they basically uh, they took a country that was flourishing advancing progressing uh, of course i had issues there were issues there were issues in every part of the world a country that was finally trying to free itself from foreign influence was was really really fighting hard to do that and they went and brought this lunatic to take over the country and just basically you know destroyed everything like really just ruined the country um but yeah that that that's a very like condensed uh, form of it uh, this is a this is a subject that requires its own like full podcast to talk about I would love to explore that more because uh, for many people, history is a difficult subject to comprehend. And uh, having sources, having material to read, having podcasts to listen could really open up one's mind to the larger context of the world because uh, we are no, no longer living in the days where information is scarce. Only interest, curiosity, and the willingness to investigate is scarce. And maybe not as scarce as it was before, but still rather. And uh, yeah, I, I was very, I'm very intrigued with what you have said. And uh, after the podcast, I will ask you for some resources for a further investigation. For sure, no, I've I've been happy to share anything. Um, and 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 as I as I just want I just want to say I completely agree with you. Um, I think it's very important that even if people have disagreements when it comes to uh, a lot of the things that we discussed and talked about, it's important for us to listen to one another because even my own opinion and views have gradually changed and progressed over time. And that's because I'm willing to sit down and talk with people who I don't necessarily agree with about everything. So it's very important for us to at least listen to one another, even if we don't completely agree. Yeah, that's true, because uh, with the current years, it seems like the world has become and is increasingly becoming even more scattered and tribalistic and separated, whether it be in the views of politics or whether it be in the views of religion, geopolitics, cultures, vaccines, whatever, what have you. There, There's uh, so much happening everywhere and uh, just an open conversation without necessarily accepting the other person's uh, truths, but just being open enough to talk and investigate together, that's uh, that's something that could change a lot. And I, I hope that in the near future, we will have more of those and it's not <laughs> and not false information from ChatGPT created documentaries or articles, because that's another danger that uh, might yeah. await us. For sure. And, uh, no. When we, when we think about the future and when we think about your future uh, as a person, uh, as a person that is interesting in languages, I, I know that it's not, this is not your primary career because as you said, you're an engineer by profession, but still, what do you think awaits you in the future and what kind of uh, changes or maybe what kind of advancements would you like to do regarding your projects? Well, one thing that, um, I have in mind, and I, I really hope that in the future I'll be able to implement this is, I, as I mentioned uh, throughout the podcast, I, I used to travel quite a lot, but in recent years, because I have two little kids now, um, it's not really possible to do that. Uh, in the future, I would really love to uh, get back to traveling, but also uh, kind of tie in 
the work that I do on this channel with my travels, uh, as in go, go to certain communities, certain parts of the world, and uh, make short videos about the language and cultures within those communities, talk to people, and also find ways of doing the same thing, as in connecting different cultures and different languages in, in different parts of the world when I travel. Well, I'll be waiting forward to that. And uh, maybe if you ever decide to come to Madeira, uh, you can find me here. Or uh, maybe if we're going to relocate, we can stay in touch. And uh, I would love to meet in person and continue this conversation and maybe some other ones to come. So I thank you a lot for joining in today. It was a very enlightening and actually a very extensive conversation about many topics. It, it was my pleasure, Paulius. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love to, and I'm, I'm pretty sure one day we'll meet in person. And uh, you're also welcome here in Toronto anytime. Oh, yeah, that would be very fun to, to actually use this opportunity and come to visit. Uh, but as you know, t teachers are not the wealthiest people around the world. So maybe if the situation changes <laughs> and I have more opportunity to travel, I'll, I'll use this invitation. Sure, whatever works, but, uh, you know, one day uh, we'll, we'll meet somewhere in the world, so. <laughs> cool. Well, anyways, uh, until, until next time, and I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation. Uh, this was Bahadora Last, and uh, I hope to see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.